Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine, mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. Danyavad and grazie to our new fans in India and Italy. Also, a shout out to our first Alaska listener. And of course, a big thank you to our longtime listeners. You can make it easier for future Mainly fans to find this show by following us on your favorite platform and maybe even leaving a review. The state of Maine has a rich Catholic heritage, thanks especially to generations of Franco-American arrivals. But when most people think of religion in colonial Maine, they tend to envision Protestant churches with varying levels of Puritan heat. Today's guest argues that image isn't quite right. Besides French Jesuit priests doing their best to convert the indigenous Wabanakis with real success, colonial Maine was home to more than a few secret Catholics. But why was Maine so full of people who couldn't or wouldn't hack the Puritan way of life? Whether in a Wabanaki village or in an English town, what did it mean to be Catholic on the Maine frontier? All that and more, just ahead. If I confess to not having any good Catholic puns, that make me a bad host? Let's do this. My guest today is Laura Chimaleski, Professor of History at SUNY Purchase College. Laura, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. I'm very happy to be here. It is a thrill to have you here. You are known for publishing a, a number of works, but I think best known is your The Spice of Popery, Converging Christianities on an Early American Frontier. To begin with, The Spice of Popery is a book that's mostly about the present-day state of Maine. And even among historians, I think that the English colony in what's now Maine, uh, its religious composition is, is often subject to debate. As you well know, but not everybody does, right, the, the province of Massachusetts Bay was officially Puritan for its first century or so. But Maine, as a, a colony of a colony, had a somewhat different trajectory. And some people frame them as, as very much you know, against the Puritan way. Others have, have argued that they are, they're very much colonized primarily by Massachusetts folk who were themselves Puritan in sympathy. What was, as far as you could tell, what's your take on the, the religious composition of the, the colony of Maine? But the reason I chose to work on Maine is because it's so very mixed. And this, this book grew out of my doctoral dissertation. When I was formulating that project, I really wanted to look at some sort of space where religious identity was coming up against challenges to its orthodoxy and was also rather fluid. And Maine became the perfect point of focus simply because, first of all, there are a lot of bad Puritans in Maine. <laughs> there are people who just kind of can't hack the New England way. And there are a lot of West Country folk, um, people who Cotton Mather described as their gods were fish and pine, who head up to the province to work in a variety of industries. Really, they, they make that transition not because it has anything to do with the spread of Puritanism, but it almost becomes incidental to it. So it is really a place where people go that has a sort of religious uncertainty. It's a province and it doesn't have clearly defined boundaries until after statehood. So it's, it's mm. something that's always this amorphous glob kind of of New England, but it's also coming up against French Canada. And then of course, it's the homeland, the ancestral homeland of scores of different Native American groups and they're having their influence as well as they try to navigate the new reality of Europeans in their neck. In The Spice of Popery, I write about the tremendous variety of religious backgrounds of settlers. That is what your expectation would have been that people brought with them from Europe. So you are finding Greeks, for example, 
in 17th century Maine. Um, you had the famous instance of the Furtado family, and they were clearly from Portugal. You have folks from all over the British Isles, including Ireland and including Wales, who come from regions that aren't really all that touched or inflected by Puritanism but they're looking for opportunity and they're seeing opportunity there, especially in the trade in lumber and also in fishing. One of the things I really love about the diversity of Maine religious expression or the diversity of Maine's religious people, I think is more appropriate, is that so many of them are doing business in cod. And who is that cod feeding? That that cod brought in by those good Puritans is feeding Catholic Europe during its 150 meatless days during uh, the yes. year. So that automatically kind of raises the question, are these silos of religious experience and identity so hard and calcified? Or is there, is there, is there a different level? And I'm certainly a, a person who argues for that different level in the spice of popery and then in the classes I teach as well. Oh, okay. For our audience who are, are less versed in, in the particulars of some of these silos, if you will. Uh, I was hoping that you could, uh, you could clarify a few things for, for them. Starting with Puritanism, I know uh, for many people, it's kind of like the paraphrasing that Supreme Court justice where it's, well, I know Puritanism when I see it, but I cannot define it, right? But... <laughs> And, and Puritan gets thrown around a lot. And, you know, my students yes. will just say, well, they're, they're very religious, which I yes. tell them, well, calling somebody religious in the 1600s is like saying they ate food or they were alive. Like <laughs> most people were. You need to more, be more specific. But if you're yes. going to, you know, for people who are not specialists in, in, in theology or religious history, when we're talking about Puritans, who, what, what do we mean here? The way I see it and the way I teach it, there are capital P Puritans and there are small P Puritans. So in the case of small P Puritans, it really would be Puritan used as an adjective. Somebody who has the inclination to purify the Church of England from its overt connections to its predecessor, Roman Catholicism. And then we have Puritans who have actively separated themselves from the Church of England. They are no longer, they no longer identify themselves as being part of the Church of England. They are a different confession and they organize their religious lives accordingly. That being said, there are many people in the new world who come out of the Puritan regions of England who can't quite be fully and completely identified as Puritans. Uh, and part of the reason for that is Puritan churches Puritan religious communities have a very high standard of proof that you have met their expectations to bear that title. And that's not something everyone can do. That's not something everyone is inclined to do. One of the things about Puritans, though, and I'm sure you've encountered this as well, Ian, when you said very religious is like saying they eat food. They are such a caricatured category of colonial American European existence. Yes. Um, my students always tend to think that it meant that they didn't have sex and didn't drink alcohol. And I don't know where they got that. I think that's probably just the, the most perfect manifestation of Puritan, small p Puritan behavior that they can muster up. I mean, so I would I argue take... it's the, the Puritans enemies really won the PR battle of they did, and that would them. be Nathaniel Hawthorne. I really yeah. think on that PR battle. Yeah, and they get yeah they get portrayed as these these very sort of Ebenezer Scrooge types. Of course, the fact that they didn't celebrate Christmas doesn't help them any. Um, <laughs> but you know, in that sense, and yeah, they get blamed for all these things that Victorians did, and to the extent that we call them Puritans, but Puritan is an insult, and eventually. You know, some of them embraced it. Uh, even uh, William Bradford, the, the leader of the so-called pilgrims, you know, he says in his big history that, well, they were called Puritans. And then they eventually said, yes, we are, you know, and, and sort of embraced yes. the, the label. But it's kind of, you know, it starts out like Jesus freak or something like that. So we should be clear, there's no church that says, you know, we are the Puritan church. Welcome to the first Puritan church of York or something like that. Correct. And when there is a name attached, that name is the product of the 18th century, and that becomes congregationalism. But right. that's also gone through many permutations to come to that early 18th century form. 
So the thing I really like to hammer home is that the Puritans aren't so seemingly aloof and unlikable as caricature would have us think they are. They're also not homicidal maniacs looking for a witch or a Jesuit. Well, maybe they're no. looking for a Jesuit. One of the other things that they seem to cling to and, and which my work really gets into quite fully is this idea that Puritans kind of didn't love their children, that they were aloof from their children and, and had no concept of their kind of gentleness or any sense of joy. So when you look at the narratives of people who are uh, captives during the wars of empire, so these wars with France that take up the better part of a century, you really see these parents anguishing over their, their anguish over what could have happened to their children or seeing their children killed. It even goes down to a point of great simplicity that I like to throw out to uh, make students more sympathetic with the Puritans. My kind of favorite Puritan, so to speak, is Samuel Sewell. And oh, yes. Sewell writes very gently and in a very sympathetic way about his daughter basically being stood up on a date. Aww. And he writes, his, his heart bled for his poor child. And if that isn't an impulse that we can understand in modern terms, I, I don't know what is. I remember he was the subject of what I thought was one of the most bad faith hit pieces that I've ever read. And it was, it was published in the 1920s, uh, ironically, so by somebody who thought prohibition was cool and was still making fun of the Puritans for being supposedly no fun. And this person was, uh, they singled out Samuel Sewell for being really morbid and said how he spent one Christmas in the cemetery and like, why would he do that? And if you read his diary, he's there in the cemetery on Christmas day because his son died and apparently his son died on Christmas. And so Sewell was really sad about all this. And I thought, yeah. well, that's just so unfair. Like he, Sewell is, he contains many multitudes, right? He was involved in the Salem witch trials, but he apologized for it. He wrote a, uh, an anti-slavery tract uh, in the early yeah, 18th the century. Of Joseph. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Sewell, you know, there's lots to be said about him, but yeah, the idea that he was an unsentimental person or that he was unfeeling or, you know, something like that, it's just really unfair. Um, I didn't know about exactly. his daughter being stood up. That's, oh, that's really charming. <laughs> did eventually marry the guy, but oh, okay, that's she good. ended up dying very young. So it's all oh. a, a rather, uh, you know, sad balancing act of the realities of 17th and early 18th century life. The other it's interesting that you mentioned him being at the cemetery and that his child died. Sewell happened to live in, in one of the healthiest regions of New England. The, the Puritans, yeah. as we know them, were fortunate that way, but he was still presiding over the funeral of a young person at the rate of about every four days. Right. It's uh, really shocking if you read those diaries. For all, you know, the Puritans, just like everybody else in the early modern period and before really modern medicine, you know, childbirth was dangerous uh, and deadly for infants as well as their mothers. Sewell himself, I believe he married four times because his, his wives kept dying. And, you know, for women, that was the, 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 the number one most dangerous activity for their lives. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then of course, infectious disease and right. Um, right. What isn't known about chronic disease or the fact that you could, you could palliate, but you couldn't actually cure. Yeah. In most cases. Um, absolutely. Circling back to the Puritans and then their Catholic neighbors and others. So one thing, thankfully, I think anti-Catholic prejudice has really declined greatly in this country in the last half century or so. And so uh, I think many people I find aren't really sure why uh, Protestants and then Puritans in particular, why they had such a problem with, with Catholicism and with Catholics. And so uh, if you could help uh, fill us in. So why were the Puritans generally so opposed to the Catholic Church? Yeah, I can address this from the perspective of, kind of liturgy and faith practice and an idea of sacred space um, and sacred time. And one of the reasons Puritans hate Catholics or hate really what are their Catholic antecedents, because these are people who are not very long divorced from when most of Christian Western Europe was Catholic. They are predestinarians. They believe that whatever is going to happen to you in your future life and after death has, is known by God. 
and they feel very strongly that you can't bargain with God. So they see the Catholic argument of free will and the administration of grace through the Catholic sacraments. Catholics have seven, and the most people are six because one is holy orders or marriage. Catholics have seven sacraments. The Puritans reduce them in number and make them more symbolic rather than more literal because you can't bargain with God. You can't affect what is going to happen to you in your afterlife. What you can do is lead a godly life. Doing that is by reading Holy Scripture and letting Holy Scripture create a pattern for your life and then hope that God sends you an affirmation that you are saved by some overwhelming feeling of grace. And that really, I think, saves Puritans from despair. Because otherwise, as far as they know, everybody's kind of going, you know, going to the dark place with uh, what is said in Seinfeld with the ragged clothing and the heat. Um, <laughs> My God, nobody, the heat. That's right. Nobody wanted that. And if you live your life being godly and have no affirmation that there's been success because God, said it, God has had everything plotted out for you, that could be a, a recipe for despair in a godly society. So Puritans are always self-scrutinizing. And it's one of the reasons why we have so many writings from them, because they are thinking about the state of their souls. They are wondering if they are receiving these acts of grace and these indications of salvation. They're kind of always looking for that, at least among the very devout. The not so devout I think are just really kind of following along the party line. And this kind of leads me to an example of one main person that I think fits that concept very well. Her name was Hannah Swarton, and she was married to a man who was referred to in records as John. He was born Jean. So he was actually from a Francophone region of Europe. He was a Channel Islander. Oh. from the island of Jersey. And Channel Islanders were, were very, very suspect in Puritan New England. They spoke French. French was their native tongue. They supposedly were Church of England, but who kind of really knew because they're very close to France. And by the way, the Mather family had traveled to New England via, I believe it was Guernsey, and it had some very negative experiences among... <laughs> their fellow ostensibly Protestants um, in the Channel Islands and, uh, and uh, left that situation. So here you have this woman who's married this man from Jersey, suspect, and then they move to the main frontier. And that's a recipe for, you know, for really wondering about who these people are. Are they crypto-Catholics? Are they kind of bad Puritans? Because how could John Swarton, who was described as barely knowing English, read an English Bible and pattern his life according to what he's hearing in the pulpit of a meeting house? That is one category that you find quite a lot of in Maine. And it leads to this religious mixing and trying to figure out who's really what and what are they doing up there. Maine is the place where you could go, not only if you were a bad Puritan, but if you were someone who kind of didn't fully get it or fully embrace it. And I think we see that with some of the Channel Islanders. That makes sense. And considering that Maine towns often struggled to have enough of a tax base to have a, a minister or even a school to some degree, the kind of infrastructure to maintain Puritan orthodoxy, even among people who wanted it, just wasn't there to the same degree. Correct. And then every once in a while, you get a really bad minister up there. One of the people executed at Salem was George Barrows. He was the subject of <laughs> our most recent Halloween special. Oh, very interesting. And he yes. was probably railroaded as pretty much everyone was. But at the same time, um, yeah. Barrows was very disliked and was kind of chased from pulpit to pulpit and kind of ends up in Maine. So Maine was the place of George Barrows's. There's, there's a whole raft of other ministers who are just completely unsuitable. Some of them are charlatans. Some of them are accused of like roaming the countryside and seducing women. One wasn't a minister at all and was chased all the way to southern New Jersey. I mean, there's just a oh, line. Wow of these bad ministers that somehow get filtered through the attempts of Maine to standardize itself 
And you're absolutely right. It, it, it can't do it. It can't attract the quality of person. Ironically, as England starts to gain the upper hand in Maine after the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, it can now suddenly offer ministers more lucrative posts in terms of land. So you start seeing the drift of more qualified people because they're going to get something out of it. I don't mean for that to sound cynical. Ministers were married men. They had families to look after. Uh, I mean, these are the same arguments that keep uh, the Catholic clergy single sex today. So they are going to look for a pulpit where they're they're going to get some remuneration that is going to um, help sustain life and limb. So it becomes more attractive as the English start to roll back that kind of amorphous area where nobody knows where the English colonies end and the French colony starts. I'm glad that you mentioned these other lesser lights and these other folks, because for for people who know something of colonial Maine, Samuel Moody of York ends up, you know, really. Father Moody. Yeah. And he ends up sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And it's not that he's not fascinating because he is, uh, and he will be the subject of his, of his own episode, but that's great. You know, and he shows up in I think it's 1700 or so, and he builds a bunch of block houses yep. and he, he's the fighting pastor and he's, he basically is the precursor to the great awakening there before the great awakening really takes hold. And he is just this force of nature there. And he publishes a lot. One of the things I like about him is he uses the rough nature of life in Maine to kind of bolster his credentials. And so he'll pull this line in some of his published sermons where, you know, I'm not one of these fancy city preachers, you know, here we have, (laughs) here we don't have wheat and we have really plain, unexciting bread to fill our bellies, but it makes us better Christians. And, you know, he, he pulls that line a lot. And to me, he's the perfect counterpoint to the Jesuits who are attempting to use their influence to nibble away at Northern Maine. So I compare Moody to somebody like Sebastian Rall, right. um, who was uh, operating on the, I believe it was the Penop- no, the Kennebec River, forgive yes, me. Yes, he was in the a little, River. little while. He has this mission. He's been there for a really long time. Ian, I went to two Jesuit schools, and I know the Jesuits of the 17th century, they're the martyr generation. They kind of gave it all up for their faith, and they were willing to do it. And I wrote this book on Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet, and they fit into that model. They're 17th century, too. But by the time you get to the 18th century, the martyr generation is done. And you have the political generation who are trying their best to build a militant Christianity in their spheres of influence. In a way, Moody and Rawl are kind of holdovers from this earlier generation uh, because they're both, I mean, Rawl is famously martyred in 1724. Well, he dies. I'm not sure. Sure. Sorry. And I, I, I don't think he wanted it. That's fair. But he became... Some claimed there were some later folks who tried to, to make him into a martyr. He was, I think, the best evidence. He was a savvy political operator, but because yes. he got he got down in the mud of of the politics in Norwich where he was preaching, that yep. meant that he had enemies too. But the fact that he was killed, uh, he was one of the last Jesuits who was killed in a military confrontation in, in Eastern North America. That certainly puts him in a different category. It does. But I think what sets him apart is that he would have much rather lived and continued to be a politician That's than true. died a martyr's death. True. I, I, I love some of his writings just kind of crack me up. And one of my favorites is he writes a series of letters to his nephew back in France, and he's describing his life among the salvages, which, of course, means something different in 17th century, 18th century French. Right. than it, it does in modern English. It's not a perfect cognate, but he's just he's talking about looting English ships and almost acting like a wrecker from Cornwall, like luring ships onto the rocks. Yeah. And then they, they break up and he and his Native American friends pillage them and have a great time sitting on the beach drinking wine and 
I'm thinking, well, hmm, that's like a new spin on 18th century religious life. Yeah. One could say, I guess he's building community. You know, he's built working yes. on building community. But at the same time, he really does enjoy those earthly pleasures. He doesn't have any uh, real desire to leave them behind in the name of a burning faith. And the way he builds Norwich Walk to be kind of a, from the way he describes it, he's moving things toward being more of a, a European style village model than a, a Native American community. And he's yeah. really trying, I think, to push that agenda. And he absolutely runs afoul of his own neophytes in yes. a lot of ways. He also, he contracted with, with English builders to come mm-hmm. to Norwich Walk and yes. help build the church and to help lay out the, the, the community. Do you know the story about him falling off the steeple? No. He fell off the steeple and he goes to an English doctor. Oh, to set his I know he went to the doctor. Limb. <laughs> So my favorite Jesuit from this time period is Etienne Loverjap. Yes. Because he's, yes. The, he's the hapless missionary to the Penobscot. And unlike Rawl, who had been there a long time and had a faction, Loverjap shows up and the Penobscot, well, they're much less confrontational towards the English for very pragmatic reasons that it was their, their land was mostly not being trespassed on when Loverjot got there. And so they just bully him into writing letters for them to the English. And he's writing these apologies (laughs) back home saying like, I'm sorry, they told me if I didn't do it, they were just going to get one of the English to do it for them. So I thought this was the best I could do. But then he gets fired because the children of this, uh, this French trapper baron so of one of the castine castine yeah so there were yes. several of the so the the descendants of this french trapper uh the castine sons uh they they've got this lucrative trading business uh in this in the 1720s but they're also they're selling booze and they're apparently throwing these these ragers of parties and they're undermining <laughs> loverja's authority uh, and he's trying to, to sort of minister and, and run a tight ship. And so he finally, and he says, oh, these people are being so disrespectful to me. And they say that, you know, they're irreplaceable and I'm not. And so then he writes, uh, he writes to his bosses and he says, it's either them or me. And then he gets fired because, of course, there were no other replacement half French, half Penobscot people who the, you know, the French hoped could be kind of agents for them. Uh, but they had replacement Jesuits, and so Lovershot loses That's his true. job. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, and to me, he's also just emblematic of this waning French influence by this point. Um, I think my favorite Jesuit is um, Pierre Biard, who was accused of being a pirate after his <laughs> settlement at Saint-Severe on Mount Desert Island is attacked. And Again, you go to these Jesuit schools and you hear about this martyr generation. Well, this this guy, too, is like complaining the whole time. <laughs> he's, he's very human. His response is a very human one. It's like, I hate this. I hate being here. I hate doing this. Now the English have accused me of being a pirate. Now they want to execute me. Now they're sending me back to England. But, but like it's he has no illusion that he's doing godly work. Uh, very, very few times that I think he even mentions the spiritual nature of his charge. Getting back to this difference between the, the Protestants uh, and the Catholics in the region, what would have been the real differences in their approach to practicing their respective faiths for people living in, in Maine? Well, other than Native people who are exploring or identifying with Catholicism, there are no Catholic churches in Maine's, what we would call the Down East settlements. Mm -hmm. So anyone who kind of lived on those fringes and might have been a Catholic back in Ireland or something like that, they have no real ability to live their faith on a daily basis. Whereas the communities down east are really imagined to be Protestant communities. So even if they're not very successful at getting good ministers or sustained ministers, at least they have that kind of spiritual 
sense of belonging and infrastructure. So a Catholic can't really do Catholic stuff in Maine if they are a Euro-American Catholic, whereas a Puritan, of course, can. It's, it's kind of imagined to, to function that way. So could you uh, talk a bit about what some of the, that Catholic stuff would be and that even the Wabanakis were maybe doing uh, in, their, in their own uh, communities, uh, those who were Catholic converts? So what was some of the Catholic sure. stuff? That- well, Catholicism then as now is, is very reliant on the sacraments, accessibility of the sacraments, chiefly the Blessed Sacrament or Eucharist. And then, of course, the blessing of and bringing new members into the community through baptism. Keep in mind, too, Puritans have their versions of this as well, but they kind of function differently. It's not the literal body and blood of Christ in Eucharist. Right. So it's detachment from how Catholics understand the sacraments. It's detachment from Catholic liturgy, which at that point would have been in Latin. So the people who don't understand Latin would have had a very physical experience of liturgy. Puritans are listeners. Catholics are doers within their liturgical structure. Uh, so kneeling and, that, and standing and those kinds of things. Correct. Responding to, to certain structured prayers and partaking in the sacraments. That's not something that is accessible to anyone in Maine who would have been Catholic. But then again, people who are born in Maine who become Catholic are chiefly enacting their newly adopted religion somewhere in French Canada. So that could be in Acadia, that could be in Quebec, that could be in Montreal, that could be in Trois-Rivières, that could be among uh, Catholicized Native Americans, such as the Wabanakis, outside of any of those communities or, or anywhere else in the landscape or among the Penobscots or the Passamaquoddy people. So these aren't people who are living together side by side on a regular basis, but because of the volatility of American frontiers and the particular volatility of Maine, they get to know each other in certain sets of circumstances more than kind of coexisting. So talking about the English who, who end up in New France, this is primarily through becoming prisoners of war, correct? Correct. Okay. Even so, though a few don't. A, a few don't. A few volunteer. Yep. A few are just like, I, I can't hack this. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> there aren't uh, that many of them, but what's very interesting about the few that exist, they do tend to become godparents for new converts from New England. Interesting. Could you give us uh, an example of each, uh, an experience of a voluntary convert and then the experience of, of a captive who ended up staying to, to give us an intimate view of this, this process? Absolutely. I could, I could probably talk about 50 captives and I find them all individually fascinating and we're very lucky to have a, a decent body of records on these folks. But voluntary ones are a little bit more difficult. And I'll tell you one who I remember and for forgive me, for the life of me, I simply cannot remember his name. But he was an English soldier. And he somehow, under some circumstance, made his way to French Canada and stayed there. And we don't really know much more about him, except he appears to have been very devout. And it raises the question, we do not have conversion records for him. We do not have records of him being baptized into the Roman Catholic faith or rebaptized. So that raises the question, was he actually an English Catholic? Was he conceivably Irish and somehow was, was outfitted to be an Englishman? Who knows? Did he find something just very, you know, spiritually missing in his religious experience and found something new? We really don't know. I mean, people didn't sit down with tracks and say, oh, you know, I think I'll give this Catholicism a try. That was right. like really good, <laughs> like uh, a really what? good counterpoint. So roughly when did this person go to Canada? Somewhere in the late 17th into the early 18th century. Okay. Okay. And we see him start to show up as a godfather to other New England captives who are being baptized into the, the Roman Catholic faith. Okay. So and that's very interesting, right? Somebody yeah. from their, their ethnic tradition 
than playing a role, a ceremonial role, but a role nonetheless in, in their spiritual custody, so to speak. Hmm. And does he leave a big documentary trail once he's in Canada? No, no, he doesn't. He's uh, described as a soldat, a soldier from Angleterre, England. Hmm. Okay. But because baptismal records, and I think um, two authors, Emily Meacham and Virginia Gould, I believe are their names, write about the richness of Catholic baptismal records in New Orleans. They give a lot of data about the people who are being baptized and the people who are standing in as godparents. And that's one of the real treasures of Catholic sacramental records, um, mm. that they, they are going to include some biographical information. In the case of Gould and Meacham's work, they were able to track that after a few generations, people of African origin were eventually standing in as godparents for other people of African origin. Whereas in, in earlier decades, that had been whites who were the godparents of people of African origin. Hmm. So uh, you, you find similar things in French Canada. They'll say where somebody is from. In the case of New Orleans, they actually mentioned the racial composition of the person. Okay. So you do get these little echoes from these baptismal records. It really is whatever the priest decides to write down, though, or his amanuensis tends to write down. So they're spotty in terms of volume. Okay. And how about one of the captive experience? Is there one that stands out to you as maybe a stand-in for a typical one? There are many. (laughs) We were just talking about this in class today. I teach history at the American West at SUNY Purchase, among other things. And in my American Frontiers course, we were talking about little snippets of captivity narratives we read of Elizabeth Hansen, the the main home son, John Giles, and Mary Rowlandson, and, and comparing those experiences. But those, of course, are all people who came back. And in Giles' case, of course, he becomes this kind of brilliant culture broker who knows everything and everyone and is able to really act as a, as a meeting party among people. As well but as a those, spy. As well as a spy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's a fascinating character. Students really take to his story. They love yeah. his story. My favorite will always be a woman named Mary Storer. And by favorite, I mean favorite person to talk about. Uh, Mm -hmm. Esther Wheelwright, the abbess of the Ursuline convent, who was England-born and related to the Hutchinson family. She's been very well considered by my colleague at, uh, I believe it's Colorado State, Anne Little, who wrote a brilliant biography of her. But Mary Storer is a young woman when she is taken captive from Wells. It's actually the same rave that, that takes Esther Wheelwright as well. She and one of her sisters and a cousin are... Young women, they're, they're not children. They are adolescent girls. And they don't spend a whole lot of time in, among the Abnakis. They're ransomed fairly quickly to French Canada. And one of the things that's really striking about people in their situation is that they, they are of marriageable and maturing age. So the way the French treat them is really probably going to have an impact on their futures. If they go back to New England, they may or may not go back in time to be good marriage prospects. And then when Frenchmen start showing up in droves wanting to marry female captives and present a portal to freedom, and they can see their futures more clearly than waiting out being ransomed, a lot of these women jump on that opportunity. And I should say as well, young men are often offered gifts of land, what are called concessions, so that they can start breaking in farms and be part of New France society. So there's a very deliberate cultivation of especially late adolescence or mid to late adolescence and young adults in a process of incentivizing them to stay in French Canada. And this is something that happens with Mary. She lives in Montreal in the household of the Boucher family, the founders of Boucherville. So they are a family of some prominence. She marries a man by the name of uh, Jean Gautier. So she changes from being Mary Storer of Maine to Marie Saint-Germain, a woman of some stature in Montreal. 
And keep in mind too, and I'm sure you know this, Ian, and probably some of our audience members know this, early 18th century Montreal and early 18th century Quebec were very different from the Down East settlements. <laughs> they didn't have this fragility to them of, of these places that could easily be attacked and reduced to ashes and, and all the population dispersed. They were pretty solid environments. So for somebody who had gone through the trauma of captivity, French Canadian cities probably would have impressed them with their stability and been a very important kind of mental and psychological counterpoint to the communities that they left behind, that in some cases they saw utterly destroyed. This would have been Mary's case. So mm. she marries Saint-Germain, and then her family finds out where she is, and they want her back. And she says, you know, no, I've really established my life here. I've converted to Catholicism. I'm reasonably happy, happily married. Excuse me, that's a bit of a whole different story but she opens up a correspondence with one of her brothers a man by the name of Ebenezer who like any smart young man from the main frontier got to Boston as soon as he was able to try to like set his fortune there that's that's really where uh, the fortunes were to be made clearly he was very ambitious they stay in touch for a period of several years and Maria uh, Marie actually comes back to visit her family at one point, and then also engages in a tussle about inheritance. There's some letters that go back and forth about that. And then Ebenezer says to her, hey, Mary, or Marie, whatever your name is now, um, why don't you send me one of your children? And I'll teach them the ropes of the family business from Boston, and we'll be able to have some you know, connection between our economic houses. Then Mary dies, and her husband, Jean, keeps up the correspondence with his brother-in-law usually asking for money, yeah. but he keeps up the correspondence a little bit uh, for a couple letters, nonetheless. So here we have examples of people who have really turned their backs on the lives that they had known and at a very formative period of life, completely redefined themselves. And yet they still keep these connections with their families. They're not coming back. They don't want to come back. Eunice Williams of Deerfield, Massachusetts, didn't want to come back, but kept in touch. Esther Wheelwright did not want to come back, but kept in touch. And Marie Saint-Germain falls into that same category. One of the interesting things about her family story is that her Ebenezer, her brother, does become quite wealthy. And he is the subject of the great Boston-based artist John Singleton Copley. So you can go to the Met Museum in New York and see this relic of the store Saint-Germain family writ large mm. through the, you know, the brush or the, or the pastel of the great John Singleton Copley. Wow. Yeah. Thinking about the way in which Mary was accepted, Marie, we should say, was accepted. It's also really fascinating how New France did not have very many colonists, and so they were, they were desperate for, for anybody. But they were willing to take English converts to Catholicism, but they were not willing to allow for French Protestants to go to Canada. That's true. And Bad so even, new French Canada. <laughs> right. And so, well, this really separated the French Empire from most of its European rivals. So the, the English, above all, were more than happy to use their empire as a dumping ground for unpopular religious minorities, whether it was Puritans or Catholics or Quakers or, or anybody else. If anything, um, you know, it seems like maybe not a majority, but close to it of, of the, the English colonies on the, on the Eastern seaboard are to some degree made as a, as a place to send these unwanted religious groups. Uh, and the Spanish and the Portuguese did this to certain degrees as well with either, yeah. you know, conversos, uh, supposedly suspicious Jewish converts to Catholicism, yes. to Catholicism. Some of whom are, are executed yeah. in Mexico city. Yeah. But it's the kind of France stands alone saying, no, we're not trusting our, our Protestants to do this. And, I, you know, arguably it was a huge missed opportunity for them. This this Protestant diaspora from France ends up benefiting a lot of their their rivals instead. 
And yet, if it's supposedly for security concerns, but they're willing to accept English converts to Christian uh, to Catholicism, rather, which yes. is a good reminder they of cultivate just, them. Yeah, it's a great reminder of just how much religion was a, a factor in in supposed in political allegiance and identity at this point. True, and that's why I find the more interesting part of her story not the fact that the French cultivated this adolescent as you would expect they would because she would be a really great PR coup and you know yeah. and she clearly she was fertile because she had a lot of children and those children identified with being French and I think one son became a priest and two daughters became nuns so she becomes kind of the ideal French settler albeit as you pointed out from a very small pool I think the more intriguing story for me is the fact that her Protestant family back home is perhaps not terribly accepting, but they don't write her off either. She's she's not dead to them. She's still their sister and they still communicate with her. And I, I think you see that even more so with the story of Esther Wheelwright, where she sends presents back to her family um, that she's made in the convent and that her, her fellow sisters have made. She sends what is probably a self-portrait of herself, which peers over the researchers in one of the research rooms of the Massachusetts Historical Society. And they send her gifts of silver and linen, which would have been very expensive things and are still actually yeah. in the Ursuline Convent of Quebec. And she says to her sisters, hey, send your daughters up here. I'll educate them. They didn't do that. But other Boston Protestants sent their daughters to, were sending their daughters to convent schools by the 1750s. Wow. Yeah, I believe uh, the Noble family is, is one of the families I know of. And there might have been some captivity connection in there. But yes, some elite Bostonians are sending their girls to the uh, convent of the Ursulines in Quebec by the middle of the 18th century. And of course, New England itself is changing to a certain degree. So you, right. you would expect some of that softening. There was a, a rise in Anglicanism and sort of more yes. high church, Church of England practice among especially upper class New Englanders by the 1750s that would right. have made and them of course, considerably more tolerant of Catholicism since Anglicanism is, you know, halfway there. Correct. I think it's more than halfway there. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you. And of course, we have the, the Puritans thought so, too. That's why they hated it. <laughs> That's right. And then, of course, you have the obvious example of like Thomas Jefferson sending his daughter to a convent school when they're in France instead of sending her to someplace in England or right. Scotland or whatever. Um, but no, he sends her to a French, a French convent school. So we would be remiss, speaking of of this, uh, of the, the popery and the, the spices being added and all the rest, uh, most of the actual practicing Catholics on the main frontier were, were indigenous. Absolutely. And these people didn't all convert to Catholicism and they, they converted to varying degrees and some of them really took a, a kind of a la carte approach to it. But mm -hmm. If you could maybe talk a bit about what did you find was the influence of indigenous Catholics on the, the sort of general spiritual potpourri on the, on the frontier? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I will say this. I believe that those card-carrying Puritans or defenders of Maine's religious frontiers as they tried to establish them really hate Catholicize Native people more than anything. That strikes fear in their heart because not only is their culture alien, but their enemies have now made a significant cultural inroad, at least in terms of building a sense of a common purpose and common language and common behavior. So there is tremendous fear there and dislike of the indigenous people themselves. And, and then also they, they will see Catholic practice in action and they will make comments about how they're just kind of trained to do this, that this doesn't reflect anything sincere. And it's exactly as you say, Ian, there are a whole bunch of reasons why Native people would have added Catholic elements, a la carte is a very good way of framing it, to their own practices. 
And that could be for preferential trade reasons. That could be for protection. That could be because the pantheon of the old religious faith really didn't seem to function anymore in the wake of European incursions into their homelands. And so they're trying something new, so to speak. It could be because the Jesuits did a really good job at making two faith systems seem compatible and comparable. And that is part of the way Jesuits operate and why they're so right. successful. We should uh, add the Wabanakis themselves would have, uh, some of them would have said, well, their, as you put it, their pantheon of their, their spiritual world wasn't as exclusive. And so for them, including the Christian God in it wasn't necessarily a, a deal breaker. Correct. Correct. It's, it's very flexible and very accepting. And when you also have the, the Jesuits saying to them, and, and I paraphrase here, obviously, sure. but after a period of trial and error, realizing that there is no good, compelling reason to completely attempt to retool Native people into being Europeans, to be Christians, that you can be a Native person and have many of the cultural elements of your Native identity and still be a good Catholic. That was a pretty revolutionary way of approaching missionary work. And it's something that's, that's very successful. So I would say one of the strongest elements of faith that you have connected to the Native American experience is the presence of their chapels built at various Jesuit missions. Because they are built by Native people, designed by Native people, decorated by Native people using Native American artworks that fuse together cultural traditions of handicraft and architecture with Catholic forms and symbolism and meaning. And I think that is the most potent element that you find of the mixing of peoples and the mixing of faith systems on the main frontier. That is a good point. And we should contrast that with the Protestant efforts to convert indigenous people in New England. It was a very one-size-fits-all approach. And the size was become, <laughs> become English people just like us. So cut your hair, put on this suit, and don't tell me it's uncomfortable. You're going to live in this kind of house. You're going to be just like us. You have to be, quote, civilized in a very English-specific way to be a Christian. And Correct. And that, uh, a good main example tough. of that would be the minister, Joseph Baxter. Do you know Baxter's story? Or oh, I... yes. He was a huge, yeah. and he was a huge failure. I found- But he his... made a lot of money. He did, yeah. Sorry. So it depends <laughs> how we interpret success. That's but right. <laughs> to me, the most poignant symbol of his miserable failure among his indigenous would-be converts is he wrote down a handful of words he learned. And the handful of words that he learned in their language were things like, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> um, and I don't understand. And like, it yeah. was just this litany of, of just sort of ways they rejected him that he wrote down in his diary. Correct. And he, of course, runs afoul with the, with the famous Sebastian Rall. Does. And Rall has this enriched lexicon that demonstrates his facility with uh, his ability to, to speak to the Canabats about complex spiritual ideas. And that lexicon is actually in Harvard's special books co collection. Baxter is working off a work of scripture in, in a completely different dialect, and he doesn't even really know it. Yeah. But yeah. of course, uh, the, uh, the venerable James Axtell includes when he describes Ral and Baxter, you know, butting heads around the Kennebec is when Ral wrote the 100 page letter in Latin to Baxter on points of theology that he wanted Baxter to clarify about his pretended religion. <laughs> so it just kind of raises the question, where did he get a hundred sheets of paper? But this is how the story goes. And then he instructs the native American messenger who's charged with taking the letter to Baxter to wait for a response. <laughs> so it kind of demonstrates to me what a wise guy Ralph was on top of everything Oh, yeah. Else. 
And I like those human insights that we get from the extant historical records. This totally, I mean, uh, yeah, he just spends years and years trolling Baxter. um, Yes, trolling is a great way of putting it. And the English. And it really does. I mean, I love his letter where he basically, he complains and he says, even the, the workmen who are supposedly going to be building building the chapel (laughs) well and he yeah he says they're lazy and he writes on behalf of one of the sagamores complaining about the shoddy workmanship of his house but yeah so he spends years just mocking and criticizing the english and baxter in particular so it really helps explain why he is the target of several kidnapping attempts by massachusetts authorities by the 1722 He's thoroughly uh, obnoxious. He he really is, and he he purposefully is is just he's totally poking the bear, um, yes, for years. And so yeah, he's he is a character that way, and he has this particularly you know bombastic style. And Baxter is clearly out of his depth. One of Baxter's responses stood out to me because it just doesn't mean the same thing to a modern audience. But at one point, Baxter writes and he says, "I won't have you make a pervert out of me." <laughs> um, by which he just means in the sense, in the lexicon of the time, like, you know, claiming that I am heretical in my scriptural interpretations. But yeah, I love their exchange. And clearly, yeah. I mean, it's, we don't have a ton of evidence for how the, the Wabanakis interpreted this exchange, but clearly Baxter didn't win by the definition of most of the Wabanakis in the sense that he didn't, he didn't really gain any any meaningful converts. There were a couple people who I believe he says were curious and they showed up. Yes, to I, some I think it was four. And um, that Ralph says he attracted them with kind of toys and, <laughs> and you know, promises or, or something of that nature. He speaks of them very disparagingly and suggests that he did it in a, in a very deceitful sort of way, which given that Catholicism is so kind of tactile, yes. uh, is a bit hypocritical <laughs> because that's exactly how Jesuits started attracting converts as well, the, with the fascinations and the wonders of the physical world of their religious belief. But yes, Baxter and his toys, he, uh, he yeah. had no time for. One of the conflicts that we, I wish we had more evidence about is that there's, Giles writes about how the more traditionalist spiritual leaders in Norwich Walk and, and, and who are our rivals with, with Rawl, they are sort of the locus of opposition to him by the, the 1720s. But we just don't have, because certainly Rawl himself doesn't want to talk much about them to his superiors. And we just don't have a lot of evidence of, of these conflicts or what they were up to. We know that some of the, the Wabanakis in Norwich Walk really didn't get involved with Catholicism at all. But there's just so much that we don't know about those conflicts and those conversations going on. Right. And we certainly know that it would serve English purposes, especially after Norwich Walk is destroyed, to say, well, it was a question of faction and there was a strong pro-English faction. It's almost like what's happening in you know Eastern Ukraine right now. We had to support the faction that was pro-English by destroying the anti-English faction. And right. the, the priest was collateral damage there. And by the way, he was shooting up everybody, including you know, people he likes. So we don't really know where the, where the truth of those stories lie. But I think you've pointed out something that, that is a point of commonality between Puritans and Jesuits, which we don't always see a lot of commonalities between them. But one is, they, they both feel they're making history and they're writing that history down. And we're so fortunate to have it because sometimes it's the only written word that we have. And of course, we all, all have to play ethno-historian and trying to scrape off the intrinsic bias mm-hmm. that comes with one side telling a story where there's clearly another side. But thankfully, they had a system of keeping records and reporting that has given us at least some insights on what was going on and what are generally kind of unregulated frontiers that are really difficult to pin down. Yeah. So as we think about this in uh, the big picture, given that Maine shared a border with so many Catholics, both indigenous and, and French, what was looking at the big picture, 
the influence on the the practice of Protestantism in Maine, broadly defined. And since Maine was officially Protestant for its the entirety of its colonial period. I think it had an energizing and standardizing effect on Protestantism. That Maine is one of those places where the frontier is being pushed back and pushed back successfully. So Quebec doesn't fall until 1759 and then Montreal the year after um, in 1760. But by 1713, you have the Treaty of Utrecht, which is drawing a pretty strong boundary. And the British are really staking out a defensive position. I think after 1713, people feel safer and more emboldened to cast their lot in Maine's future. It just feels a bit safer. And I think that the people who, like, uh, no, the people who go up there are Protestants from New England who are seeking more opportunities. For some reason, we seem to have this idea that there was no such thing as a poor Puritan. There are plenty of poor Puritans who are looking for new opportunities. So instead of having the people who can't really hack the New England way so much, being a pretty significant population up there, now you start seeing the people who are seeking new opportunities. So they're increasing the population of that region, and they're bringing in more of a, of a Protestant sense. And by the time you get to the middle of the 18th century, you see much more of a, you know, of a movement up the coast. And I think many more people living within a more standardized sphere of Protestant identity and Protestant behavior. You're finally getting those frontiers well defended, as I believe Cotton Mather called them. You're finally getting the shoring up of a Protestant identity, along with a something more, not great, but something more of a geopolitical shoring up of a boundary between French Canada and New England. Great. So now I will ask you what I ask all of our guests. What is something that you are working on or have recently come out with that our listeners should be aware of? Well, thank you very much. My book on Jacques Marquette and Louis Chaudier came out in um, 2017. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, was published by Rutledge. It's part of a series called Historical Americans. And it's a series of expository biographies. So um, it includes some very interesting titles. Arlo Guthrie, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Ronald Reagan's in there, Andrew Jackson's in there, um, Belle La Follette, Frederick Douglass. It's a very diverse collection of individuals whose stories can really throw significant points about American history into relief. So when I was asked to participate in this series, um, I was asked to do a Spanish explorer. I said, I, that's really kind of out of my depth. But then I pitched this dual biography of Marquette and Joliet, contextualizing their epic journey down the Mississippi River in the 1670s. And that has come out. Like so many people, I stalled out while circling my other projects due to the pandemic. So I'm currently working on two books and an article. I'm also a maritime historian. So one of my books is on the interstices of maritime communities and religious practice and the people who move through them. So oh. that's one place where my religious work is going. Interesting. And I'm looking at a variety of Atlantic world cities to make those arguments. And then in addition, and I have gotten some publication interest in this, so I'm going to be moving ahead with this one first. I'm working on a general history of Catholic people in early America, not practice, uh -huh. not politics, not institutions, but people. So this is going to be kind of a multi-biography of how did you function as a Roman Catholic in the English New World up until about 1820. So that's something that's going to be occupying a lot of my time. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to when that comes out. Thank you. Thank you very much. And final question. What is something that somebody else has recently come out with that you would recommend to our listeners? Okay. This isn't too, too recent. I, I believe it also came out in 2017. If I'm not mistaken, it might be a little later. And it's completely unrelated to anyone, anything else 
we talked about, I, I strongly recommend Wilkinson's The Warmth of Other Suns, which was a mind-blowing book. It took the stories of three migrants from the Jim Crow South and all of those horrific realities and then traced their stories and their journeys and added the context of what's going on in the nation at that time. It's a huge book, but it's a book that, that reads really fast just because it gets you and it grabs you and you, you simply can't put it down. And you become so invested in these human stories. I really recommend this for anybody who's interested in American history writ large. That sounds good. Yeah, The Warmth of Other Suns uh, is on my list of, of things to pick up. It's something I, I've always, I know the outlines of the Great Migration, but I don't know enough about the details. And it's something that I want to learn more about, uh, especially as somebody from Chicago and my hometown was so shaped by it. Yes, yes. And one of the historical players ends up in Chicago. And there's a lot of discussion of how the South side of Chicago develops in the wake of migration from the South. And all of the, I mean, you, you, we tend to think of the great migration as fleeing prejudice. It's fleeing one kind of prejudice into the arms of a different kind of prejudice, yeah. especially when it comes to places like New York and Chicago. Absolutely. Laura Chimileski, thank you so much. Hopefully we will speak with you again. Thank you so much for asking me to uh, be a participant. That's our show. Coming soon, we'll be talking about the role of different religious groups in peacefully creating Maine's border with Canada in the decades following the American Revolution. I promise there's plenty of surprises, even if our story involves Canadians being polite. That's next time on Mainly History.